And we are back on KUCI's Justice or Justice. Well, you think slavery is a remnant of the past. Think again. Human trafficking is a modern form of slavery involving the abuse and maltreatment of the most defenseless and feeble members of the world community. Well, in the wake of political battle or natural disaster, women and children are particularly vulnerable to human trafficking. My guest this morning is Sandra Kirkpatrick of Artists United for Social Justice. It's an organization that utilizes new media to educate about human exploitation. Ms. Kirkpatrick just returned from Haiti on a mission to uh, both deliver medical supplies and to investigate uh, child trafficking in the aftermath of the devastating earthquake. Uh, Sandra Kirkpatrick is a humanitarian activist who has long been engaged in social justice issues. She worked for many years as a public guardian and conservator, which drew her further into humanitarian work, including being a Red Cross disaster volunteer and spokesperson. She's worked with several abolitionist nonprofit organizations to, to promote the eradication of slavery and has spoken on the radio and at public venues about the issue. She recently completed a mission to Thailand involving the trafficking of women, that is, a mission to Thailand involving trafficked women, she wasn't trafficking women, and children, and delivered medical supplies uh, to two medical teams. Uh, Her latest mission was to Haiti following the earthquake, where she delivered supplies and worked with UNICEF to alleviate child trafficking. Her uh, resume goes on and on, but more importantly, she joins us this morning at KCI. Good morning, Sandra. Good morning. Thanks for such a nice introduction. <laughs> Thanks so much for uh, for joining us. Why don't we begin um, with some basics? I mean, certainly uh, listeners of this program are uh, probably have some knowledge of the idea of human trafficking, but reading through this, uh, you know, we keep mentioning the term slavery. And uh, I just finished doing, you know, a month of programs on, on Black History Month. And so it almost sounds like an anachronism to refer to slavery in the modern sense. So maybe you could give our listeners um, a bit of background. What exactly do we mean when we talk about um, human trafficking and, and modern day slavery? Well, probably the best uh, reference for the subject is the TIPS report that the government puts out. But um, human trafficking has been uh, defined as uh, since the TIPS report was passed it's described as the illegal trade of human beings by abduction, force or the threat of force, deception, fraud, or a sale for the purpose of labor or forced sex. Also, people who are coerced that is held against their will to pay off a debt, which is known as debt bondage. Any person under the age of 18 who is exploited through commercial sex is considered trafficked, whether force is used or not. They are not considered to be able to give consent if they're under 18. So the TIPS report is uh, great. You can just Google that, just um, TIPS report for 2009. And, and TIPS stands for? Uh, trafficking in Persons. Great. So that's put out by the U.S. State Department every year, and it gives a tremendous amount of factual information. It uh, explains how uh, governments around the world are rated by the U.S. State Department. They're placed in uh, th- one of three tiers. Actually, it's three and a half tiers because they have a tier one, a tier two, a two, a tier two watch list, and then a tier three. And so the worst offenders are on tier three. And it will um, show you who those uh, countries are. So if you are a consumer, you might want to, for instance, check the labels of things that you are buying to see which countries they are coming from. Perhaps you might want to pass up on something that you know is manufactured in a country that's in tier three because it might uh, be uh, forced labor that manufactured that. Uh, 
Um, Congress initially passed the TIPS Act in 2000 uh, to outlaw interna- uh, slavery internationally. And uh, the U.S. has been a trendsetter in the effort to combat uh, human trafficking. Since the TIPS Act was passed by the U.S., I think it's like about 120 other countries have passed similar legislation. So uh, that's one record that the U.S. can be proud of, of being a trendsetter in that way. They also rank uh, countries uh, in terms of how, how many prosecutions they've had that were uh, successfully concluded by actually uh, sending the traffickers to jail. And that's kind of an illuminating um, uh, few pages to look at to see how much is being done in that way. Uh, human trafficking is not a small problem. It's the second largest uh, illegal business in the world. It follows only illegal drug trafficking or illegal arms trafficking. It used to be that it also followed illegal drug trafficking, and it was number three, but it is a growing problem. So it has now surpassed illegal drug trafficking and is number two. It grosses, they estimate, some $32 billion annually. It's a huge business. So um, we're, we're not making very good headway, and that's one of the reasons I got involved um, the organization that I work with, uh, Artists United for Social Justice, and their website is AUSJ.org, works to empower artists to make social statements through their art. Our focus is preventing trafficking or stopping uh, slavery. So we have done a couple of uh, films, uh, one called Svetlana's Journey. The other one is Cargo Innocence Lost. Uh, both of those films were... Um, pioneers in the field and have been used as kind of standards of the industry uh, as far as films about human trafficking go. Now, I understand if any of you, anyone has read Nicholas Kristof's book, Half the Sky, that they are now in the process of making a film based on six of the stories from that. Nicholas Kristof is a big fighter against uh, human trafficking, has been for many, many years. So uh, that one will be something to look forward to. And his, um, they're also doing uh, a showing of um, uh, his work uh, um, about the uh, subject tonight, I think, in uh, theaters around the country. So that would be a good one to check out, too. How does human trafficking begin? I mean, it, it you know, when we think of, of slavery, you know, in, in U.S. history or European mm-hmm. history, it's, you know... Um, people from other lands, you know, conquering and, and colonizing and capturing and, and transporting overseas. But I, I'm guessing that's not what's, what we're talking about here. So exactly, or, or, or are we? Um, well, if you think about slavery, the incentive is monetary. So it happens all over the world. And, and if there weren't a profit to be made, it wouldn't happen. So it can happen within borders. It can happen because of natural disasters or political upheaval, as you mentioned. Uh, but it, it can also happen just uh, within the country. And I'm sure people have probably seen or heard of uh, films like Taken, for instance, which I believe was about a person here in the U.S. So it's not that it happens someplace else, and it doesn't necessarily happen that people are transported uh, across borders, although it certainly does involve that a lot of the time. Um, but uh, what traffickers look for is uh, people who are vulnerable. And they may be vulnerable because they're young 
They may be vulnerable because they're poverty-stricken. Uh, they may be vulnerable because they've gone through a natural disaster, such as Haiti, and families get separated. Um, one of the problems, for instance, in Haiti that I'm actually working on with UNICEF is that when people were dug out of the rubble, the families would be, the the parents would be carted off to one hospital, the children would go to another, or some injured family members would be taken to one shelter, and the other family members might go to the hospital or be shipped off with relatives or the neighbors. And so people get separated, families get broken up, and that leaves children very, very vulnerable. And that is why traffickers focus on areas of natural disaster because they know they'll have easy pickings. So uh, I want to remind listeners during tune to KUCI in Irvine, this is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Sandra Kirkpatrick of Artists United for Social Justice. We're talking about human trafficking both broadly and particularly uh, in the aftermath of the earthquake in Haiti. So if families are separated or there's a missing parent or, or relative, um, that creates the opportunity then for, for someone to swoop in and what happens? Are they deceptive? Do they yes. claim that they are? A relative. Yes. Frequently they'll go to a hospital or something and they'll say, well, they're the auntie of little so-and-so. And, and uh, if the hospitals or shelters or something aren't careful, then they, they think, oh, good, here's the missing relative we've been looking for. We can turn the child over. Now we're okay. Uh, so, yes, they do use deception. But also, if you think about how when the, SAR, the search and rescue teams are out and you're digging through the rubble, things are very chaotic. People are in a high uh, state of uh, disorientation. So the kids may be anywhere, you know, maybe circling around looking for their parents. or You know, they are just very vulnerable even to just somebody walking up and saying, um, you know, here, I'll take you and uh, get you a glass of water or, you know, uh, would you like a Coke or, and walking off with them before they even make it to a shelter. So, or, or they can just say, well, I lived at, right down the street. You know, you want to come down and rest for a minute. You've been standing here for a long time. So, yeah, they're very deceptive and uh, the kids are not thinking straightly. Uh, nobody else is thinking real coherently in those kinds of situations. The government is also not in place. I talked to the chief of police in Haiti. He told me he had lost four-fifths of his police force. Mm. And the jail was destroyed, so over 4,000 criminals escaped at the same time. You know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, taking a look at the the earthquake in Chile and, and Haiti, and uh, we could even look at Katrina and, you know, other places, uh, when it comes to crime or victimization, uh, the international news media seems to focus on looting as if the taking of property is the worst possible form of victimization that could occur, uh, aside from the, the lack of government response, if we want to consider that a form of you know, victimization or abuse. Um, and yet... All of this potential for human trafficking, for the exploitation of women and children, for, uh, you know, forced labor and smuggling and so forth, falls off the radar. Mm -hmm. It must be pretty, pretty um, maddening uh, for someone who's dedicated uh, her, her life's work to, to dealing with this, to, to see that the real stories are, are kind of 
you know, falling aside and that we're only hearing about people looting. And, and of course, people are going to loot when when you go days without food and without shelter and, uh, you know, without medical supplies, it's going to happen. Right. Well, I think the one of the problems is that when particularly with the TV, which is a visual medium, it's easy to show people looting. It's a little more difficult. I mean, they'd have to do a little bit of work to prove that the person that just took the child by the hand and said that they were the neighbor wasn't really the neighbor. And they could get into a lot of trouble if it turned out that they were the neighbor. So I think just from ease of uh, being able to display something and do it quickly and then be able to move on to the next topic, I think that's why the looting gets covered because it's just visually so so easy pickings. Um, I think that the media, I watch CNN a lot, so I think that they did a pretty good job of covering Haiti. They did have a large amount of coverage on it, much more, I think, than most stations did. But I did notice that they didn't particularly focus on trafficking, you're right, uh, which is a, a real shame because in Haiti the, the problem is really huge, particularly because they have their own brand of trafficking, which is called the Restovic system. And I don't know if you've heard about Restovics, but it's a form of slavery, uh, indigenous to Haiti. It's been there for a couple hundred years, started out when they came over from Africa. And the system started out, they call it minding the child. And initially what ha- would happen would be because it's an impoverished nation, the, the, uh, the lowest level of uh, poverty-stricken people would give their children to a wealthier friend or family member or something, and that, that wealthier person would take on the care of that child just like another child. So initially it started off as a benign system where the, the, the impoverished children were actually being helped. But over time it involved to a very uh, not benign system where the children are virtual slaves. They really are slaves. It's, it's unpaid slave labor. They are not educated. They are not necessarily clothed or fed well. They are forced to work as many as 20 hours a day. And it's funny how things work, but the cab driver that drove me to the airport in Miami was Haitian, and he was telling me about the rest of its system. And a couple cases in Miami that were prosecuted successfully of people who had brought over Restovics told, you know, got visas for them like they were their own children. They weren't. They were trafficked, but brought them into this country and then rented them out. And they rented them out 20 hours a day. Mm. So um, it's unpaid uh, slave labor of children. Unfortunately, as well as being overworked and unpaid and uneducated, the children are often abused, beaten, uh, and uh, sexually molested. Uh, that's just an, another yet worse uh, aspect of, a, of this system that initially was uh, put in place to help and has just not done the job. And I talked to several people about the rest of its system and the rest of its when I was in Haiti, and it's a very complex problem because it's very often it's going on today because the the parents are so poverty-stricken, they cannot even feed the child. Therefore, they think, well, if the child's going to starve to death anyway and this person says they're going to take care of them, they're going to take a chance that they will do that because uh, they, they feel that the, the alternative is they're going to watch the child die of starvation. Right. So, the, again, I mean, 
most victimization takes advantage of people in vulnerable you know, right. circumstances. Right. Uh, I want to remind listeners that they're in tune to KUCI. This is Justice or Just Us. We're taking a look at human trafficking, modern-day slavery. My guest is Sandra Kirkpatrick, uh, Executive Director of Artists United for Social Justice. Uh, I want to get into uh, some um, specifics of your trip to uh, to Haiti and elsewhere, but uh, let's just make sure that we um, we finish up on on an overview. So um, we've talked about Haiti. What other countries? Um, you know, when we think of human trafficking, what countries are we talking about? And uh, you know, what role does the United States play um, either by by not taking more intervention or um, simply because, I mean, I know, you know, shirt manufacturing and the clothing industry certainly plays a role. And we're hearing in the aftermath of the earthquake, all this talk about, you know, it's the clothing industry that's going to get, you know, get Haiti back on, on economic, solid economic footing. And, um, you know, on this program, we've covered sweatshops. Um, I've traveled to uh, Tijuana with some of my students on a students against sweatshops campaign. I think we had, you know, spoken about that when we initially met. And uh, we know that, you know, you check the label, but even if it says made in America, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't sweatshops in the the fashion district in in downtown LA. So how do we know that there aren't uh, Haitian or other transplants? So I just gave you a mouthful, but uh, go for it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, like I said, you can look at the tier three uh, countries and kind of start from there. But yes, identifying who who's doing what, where is a real problem. Um, with the sweatshops, for one thing, uh, you have to remember that people in Haiti generally, unfortunately, the majority of them make less than $2 a day. So it's kind of relative there, uh, you know, when you're th- thinking about those terms. It's the same thing like with the rest of it problem. It's it's all relative, so there's no easy, simple solutions. If there were, the problem had been gone long ago. Uh, it's, it's just not easy. Um, but in an overview sense, that is why uh, AUSJ has kind of taken the path it's taken, which is to try to work on changing the consciousness level so that slavery in any form becomes, uh, you can kind of equate it with cannibalism. It's just something that people aren't going to tolerate. And I think that's what has to happen. There has to be this whole change in attitude about um, taking advantage of uh, less fortunate people. Then I think we'll make some progress because, as I said, it's a growing problem. It's not going away. Um, The U.S. has actually got a fairly good track record in that it does have the TIPS report. It does have the legislation there does seem to be uh, more of a focus now on, on working on the issues and trying to uh, get a handle on it, come up with some innovative solutions. They're talking about gender equity. Uh, 80% of the slaves, the people who are trafficked, are women and children. Uh, 50% are children. So, I mean, they're at least looking at the issues. They're talking about the issues. And I think that's the big first step is and when people want to work on it, creating awareness, talking about it, and getting people to understand what a big problem it is. And it isn't just overseas. It is here. It is in L.A. I've actually gone and walked the streets of L.A. And let me tell you, there is trafficking in L.A. Um, it's, it's countrywide, and it is in every country. Just some countries have more of a problem, 
and some countries have less of a problem. It's always worse when there's abject poverty or, yeah, some things just seem to uh, lend themselves to facilitating trafficking. So how did you get involved in uh, this line of work of preventing uh, human trafficking. I mean, take us on on, uh, on Sandra's journey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had kind of an interesting journey. I didn't. I really didn't know anything about trafficking a few years ago, and I was on the board of directors of an organization. I still am actually on the board of an organization called the Immortal Chaplains Foundation, which is a very interesting group in and of itself. They award uh, a prize uh, called the Prize for Humanity annually to a person that um, has done outstanding work that's risked their life to save other people's lives that they don't even know. So I'm on the nominating committee for that organization, and I looked at, uh, I went to uh, your and my favorite coffee shop and saw the uh, OC Weekly there with a picture of a man named Aaron Cohen on the front page, and under it it's called The Slave Hunter. My first impression was, oh, my gosh, don't tell me they're hunting slaves like foxes now. But I read the article, and, of course, it's just the reverse is true. He was, he was hunting slaves to free them. So I uh, nominated him and uh, interviewed him uh, to um, be sure that my nomination was on track. And he spent a great deal of time informing me about human trafficking, and he's very knowledgeable. So after hearing about it from him and hearing some of the stories and the experiences that he had, it was just such a heinous crime. I couldn't walk away from it. I just, after hearing about it, I had to do something about it. So that is how I actually got started on working uh, on the problem. And I've worked with a number of organizations to that end over, over time. And as I mentioned, I'm now the executive director for Artists United for Social Justice. And I feel like they've got the right, they've got the big picture. They are looking at the overall thing and how to really make a dent in it and turn that statistic of a growing problem around. And it is through awareness, uh, getting people involved and interested and understanding that their actions can have an impact and also just keeping their eyes open. People have been successfully prosecuted because the neighbors noticed that although there were four children in the household, only three were being picked up by the school bus. Just stuff like that. If you just pay attention, you may see something. Those people then called, um, actually they called the school and the social worker, and then they uh, called the ICE, uh, which is the Homeland Security Mm -hmm. Department that handles trafficking. But there is a hotline that you can call if you suspect trafficking, and they tell me they are very, very happy to chase down any lead. They don't care whether it results in an actual prosecution or anything else. They would much rather follow your your tip than not. They'd much rather be wrong than not get the tip. Now, this was a question I was going to say for later, but it, it seems... Uh it seems relevant, I think, right now. Suppose someone does call, uh, you know, ICE, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, what happens to that child? Does the child get sent back to the point of origin where no. they could become vulnerable again, or do we have protective custody? Or yeah, no, they they aren't they aren't sent back. And let me give that number out while I'm thinking about it. It's eight 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 three seven three seven. 
So again, that's the that's the Polaris hotline number, but it's the one that the uh, that ICE uses. It's eight 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 three seven three seven eight eight eight, and that's the tip line if you suspect anything. No, people are not automatically deported. They I mean, do. The, the criminals may be, but I mean the children is what I'm. Yeah, no, right. the children aren't. Okay. Uh, and that and that is a, a fallacy. That's one of the reasons that um, the people who are trafficked think that they can't call the number if they have the opportunity because they're afraid that they will be deported. No, that's not the case. They're because we have the tips laws in place. They are protected. They can get what they call a T visa. It's a temporary visa that they can stay here, I think, up to seven years while they apply for regular citizenship if they want. But there are laws to protect them from being deported so that they don't get re-trafficked. So uh, we're speaking with Sandra Kirkpatrick, Executive Director of Artists United for Social Justice. And uh, we'll talk more about that organization at the, the end of the program. We're taking a look at human trafficking. So tell us uh, where have uh, where has this issue taken you globally? Um, you know, and then finish off by telling us a bit about uh, give us a report back about Haiti, both just the conditions there, you know, regarding the earthquake, but then specifically, okay, you get there and how does one go about investigating this? There are no roadmaps that say go here, go there. So, yeah. Uh, so what did you start out with? Well, first where, you know, where, where have you been? Okay. You know, give us a little background and then uh, I know you were, you were in Thailand and right, then yeah. Yeah. take us, take us on uh, the journey <laughs> on your itinerary. Okay. Well, I started out in LA. Uh, there's a wonderful organization that I got uh, involved with called Nightlight. Um, Nightlight Bangkok is very active in actually going into the bars and brothels and looking actively looking for people that they suspect may have been trafficked. Uh, Nightlight in L.A. used to go out and uh, walk the streets of L.A. looking for people and handing out information. And I, I think that the awareness that is brought about through handing out information, ICE puts out all kinds of information, posters, and they give out the hotline number and there's a lot of the Salvation Army is a, a big uh, promoter of uh, stopping human trafficking. They also have a lot of information, speakers. Um, so I went to uh, start out in L.A., went to Bangkok, and um, then uh, went back to Thailand and Cambodia, visited several places. I was looking at shelters there, vetting shelters to be sure that they were what they said they were and were taking proper care of victims. Um, I found four very good shelters scattered around Thailand, had an incredible experience there in which I actually wound up being followed by undercover members of the SPDC, which was something I hadn't counted on. But because I do humanitarian missions as well as investigate trafficking, I was bringing in medical supplies to two medical teams who... Um, they work the, to um, they provide medical attention to the ethnic minorities of Burma, and uh, the Burmese minorities are targeted by the the official Burmese government. Um, so that's how I wound up getting in, uh, winding up with a tail there. But um, the trafficking in Thailand is fairly open and easy to spot, and there again, a lot of it is because. Uh, of the poverty. People in the Isan province in Thailand, the country of Thailand, it's a very poverty-stricken area. So they come to Bangkok. They send the young woman to Bangkok because they think 
that they can make a killing being, you know, a waitress or work in a hair salon or something. Of course, that's not what happens to them. They wind up going to the big city and getting trafficked. Now, again, there is a, a um, component in there where they're not forced necessarily or not all the time because they are, they are uh, at least some of the times, they are paid for their work. They do send money home. Some of them wind up getting sucked into the commercial sex industry through that route. Some of them are actually trafficked in that they are forced. They are not allowed to leave, and they are forced to work, and they work very hard. So uh, there is, a um, again, it's a, a, a clear and an unclear component to the trafficking, the whole trafficking issue. Same thing uh, for Cambodia. Um, there, I mean, you, you have to realize if you see a little girl six years old, she certainly didn't sell herself to wherever she's at. I mean, so that's obviously trafficking, no matter what's going, what else is going on. The, the girl's been trafficked. Um, I wound up going to Haiti because of the natural disaster, because I know that natural disasters wind up drawing traffickers. It's just a fact of life. It makes their lives more difficult. In Haiti, again, we have this the rest of it situation, which makes things not so clear because you can't because sometimes the parents give their children up in the in the false hope that they'll be better provided for, and it's a sheer act of desperation. So uh, I talked to a, a very courageous lady there who runs an orphanage in Port-au-Prince, and um, I heard this story from other orphanage directors that the parents will come to them and say, can you take my child? I simply cannot take care of them anymore. Can you just take them and keep them and provide for them for now? Because I can't. And so sometimes the orphanages will take in the children. Another, Yet another reason why people shouldn't go to orphanages and start grabbing children, because maybe they have parents who actually want them back. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. <laughs> right. <laughs> Local, uh, I mean, a recent uh, national news story. Right, exactly. Um, Even if they are truly orphans, it's not necessarily the best possible solution for them to be uprooted from their country, their native language, the, the relatives that are left, all their friends, the way of life they've always known, and shipped off to a foreign place. Well, and I, I suppose an equivalent would be uh, foster care here. Sometimes children, for whatever reason, go to foster care, but they're still in touch with their right. their, their parents here, and you wouldn't want someone to come in and go to a foster care home right. and say, okay, well, we'll take those kids. Right, you know? right, exactly. So so even though, and a, and a lot of people have asked me about this since I came back, you know, well, what about the the missionaries that, you know, uh, everyone thought was trying to do this good deed. Well, over time, of course, it's become clear that it wasn't such a, just a good deed motivation uh, going on there, that there were many other things going on. And I I actually talked to one of the orphanage directors that was contacted by the leader of that group, Laura Sills, I think her name. Um, And uh, he said when she called him that... uh, she said that she just wanted 100 children to take the Dominican Republic, and he said, obviously, no. Um, for one thing, the Dominican Republic is one of the countries that the Haitians get trafficked to the most. So uh, another, uh, he, t- he also told me he got a call from another person he did not know who said that he had a plane ready and waiting to take children to the Dominican Republic. Well, that sounded to me like real trafficking bingo, 
and I asked him if he got the guy's contact information. Unfortunately, he did not, but he told me that next time he gets a call like that, he will try to get that information. The Haitian police chief that I spoke to, they are aware there's a problem. Um, they have the JOTC, the Joint uh, Task Force there with the United Nations, so even though he has lost four-fifths of the police force, the UN is trying to help him. Um, they are working on the problem. They are aware there's a problem. Um, so uh, they also have a hotline in uh, Haiti that I was able to give that phone number to the orphanages there in case they receive any kinds of calls like that. They can uh, turn in those people, get that, uh, that contact information, and turn them in. So... Um, so how soon after the uh, earthquake were you on the ground? Where do you stay? I mean, if, you know, you, you hear of, uh -huh. you know, were you in tents? And then how do you coordinate? How do you decide, okay, this is where we need to go? And why, how do you gain the trust of locals to take you seriously? I think one of the things you said is that if you're delivering medical supplies, mm -hmm. you know, obviously we're not saying that that's a cover because right. you're there for, to protect people, whether right. it's from human trafficking or other yeah. harms. Yeah. But um, take us through that, a day in the life of okay. Sandra Kirkpatrick in Haiti. Well, first of all, I had to get the, get the medical supplies. And uh, then I, you know, I was watching these, these, uh, terrible images coming in from Haiti, these little children in tent hospitals that were amputees and they didn't have medicine and they didn't have anything but the clothes on their backs. They're, it's in a hospital, it's very loud. They're trying to fall asleep. And I just thought, you know, they, they just need a little teddy bear to cuddle up to. So I, in spite of the fact that we didn't have a whole lot of cargo space, I went out and bought a bunch of teddy bears to take to the little kids because they just needed something soft and cuddly. So because I was bringing in medical supplies, I, I uh, contacted the University of, Med of Miami, whose Miller School of Medicine had put up a 300-bed hospital tent, field hospital, in the airport, within the airport perimeter. And they were bringing in uh, medical supplies in their partnership with a group called MediShare, which is a Haitian group. Um, and they brought in doctors and nurses, a whole medical staffs. So um, I flew in to Port-au-Prince with them and stayed at the field hospital there uh, with the University of Miami and helped out at the hospital, gave them my supplies, was able to go in and deliver my teddy bears to the pediatric patients. And let me tell you, half the parents wanted bears as well. There you go. Which, which you know, I'm not going to say no. So I wound up giving half the parents bears. And later then, I, I wanted to go to the orphanages and give out bears, and I'm looking at my remaining supplies of bears, wishing I hadn't given out quite so many to the parents. And I said that to one of the nurses, and she said, you know what, those parents are just as attached to those bears as the kids are. So, I mean, you know, you, when you're in that situation, you have nothing. You just need something to hold on to. Mm -hmm. So I was very happy, actually. I, I brought the bears, and it did, I mean... It did make the kids happy. It was a little something. It wasn't much, but it was a little something, and it it, it made their suffering a little more bearable. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> you have to watch that. But um, so that's how I went in because I was able to deliver the medical supplies. I went in that way, and then um, because I worked for AUSJ, made contact with other groups there: uh, World Vision International, Save the Children, UNICEF. 
Um, AUSJ is now working with UNICEF. We're look, we're um, continuing to investigate the child trafficking there, working on training programs to uh, help with the problem there. Um, and I will continue to uh, to work with UNICEF in Haiti. That's going to be an ongoing mission for us. So uh, we're running a little short on time, so I want to make sure we could talk about uh, AUSJ and then um, you know make sure we cover again all the mm-hmm. things that people could do to, to prevent human trafficking. So um, tell us a bit more about um, AUSJ, Artists United for Social Justice. I think it's, it's interesting that it takes... Um, you know, kind of a, a new media approach and mm-hmm. that, that artists have a particular role in promoting uh, social justice. Howard, mm-hmm. Historian Howard Zinn, who recently passed away, is uh, one of my heroes, and uh, he wrote a book titled Artists in a Time of War. And whether mm-hmm. the issue is war or human trafficking or whatnot, he says that, you know, when you've got this this medium, this uh, the talent, the creativity, um, one should take advantage of it. So tell us a bit about um, AUSJ and um, its unique approach. Well, um, AUSJ got started because uh, Michael Corey Davis, the founder, is uh, an actor, producer, writer, director. And it's an interesting story about how his, uh, his first film, Svetlana's Journey, got made. He was on location in Bulgaria filming. And he was invited by a nonprofit in Bulgaria that ran a shelter for women who'd been trafficked. The problem in Bulgaria... He was filming something else, right? He was filming something right. else, a commercial film. And the problem in Bulgaria is that, uh, like a lot of Eastern European countries, it has a, a low income level. And then they... The, so the people from Eastern Europe get trafficked to Western Europe. And again, they get promised great jobs as nannies or whatever, and they buy into that, and then they arrive at their new destination to find that they've been sold into the commercial sex industry. So um, Michael saw the shelter and talked to the women in the shelter, and he was so horrified about what was happening to them, he decided on the spot he had to do something about it. So what he did was to write and film with the help of the shelter and the Bulgarian government, because the government realized they had a real problem with trafficking, this film, Svetlana's Journey, and it is based on the life of a 13-year-old Bulgarian girl who was trafficked. She was sold, flat-out sold, by her relatives. And um, I want to tell you the whole story, but um, the Bulgarian government was so impressed with the film, it is an award-winning film, that they used it in the high school curriculum to warn uh, particularly young girls, but also young boys, about trafficking and what happens and what to watch out for and, you know, to, to warn them not to let themselves be exploited. Um, so that's kind of how uh, the whole idea came about. And when you look at how pernicious slavery is and the fact that it's growing and all of the things that we've been doing have not slowed that growth. So it was obvious, you know, we need to take somehow a larger view and reach larger audiences and come up with different ways of thinking about dealing with it. Our age is a very visual age because of the television and computers. You're all looking at screens all the time. So it's kind of a natural to think that, okay, you want to have a visual medium in particular. Well, who does visual mediums? Artists. But artists have always had, I think, uh, a real pivotal role in creating change. 
For instance, if you look at the Civil War, well, why, why were they able to make that change from thinking that slavery was okay to thinking that no, it isn't? Well, it was because of people. It was because of books like Uncle Tom's Cabin. Right. So there again, we have artists at the forefront of leading that change. In this case, an author. But that's what got people talking about it and thinking about it. And then we have people like Wilbur Wilberforce who came along and were able to politically act and and uh, be able to you know philosophically and politically follow up on these things and make these kinds of changes happen. So that's kind of where AUSJ is coming from, you know, is that we have to have this whole attitudinal change in that artists can be at the forefront of helping that change occur. So if there are listeners out there who uh, might not be artists but want to help bring about that change, uh, what kinds of things can uh, listeners to Justice or Justice do to get involved to help prevent um, human trafficking? Is there other opportunities to bring uh, Svetlana's journey to community groups or uh, church groups for viewings or whatnot? Yeah, we do do screenings as uh, Svetlana's journey. Um, we, the last one, I think, was um, uh, sponsored by the city of West Hollywood. Um, actually, um, CSU Fullerton is going to sponsor a screening for in conjunction with Women's History Month. Um, so we do do that. Um, other ways for people to get involved are if you go to the AUSJ website, you'll see some um, uh, points about how people can get involved. One of the things that Michael has done is created five what he calls commercials. They're very short little spots in which he discusses five different aspects of human trafficking, that is slavery. And if you are aware of the problem, Keep your eyes open. I mean, people have been successfully prosecuted. Trafficking rings have been broken because people paid attention. That's a big part of it is just being aware, talking about it, um, and uh, calling that number if you see anything that I gave you, that uh, 888-373-7888. So those are two very simple ways that you can just um, help is just by being aware uh, of course, if you uh, want to make a donation to further our mission works, we obviously are going to appreciate that. There are a lot of organizations that are out there working. Uh, check it out. Uh, go to the tips report. All you have to do is go to Google and look up human trafficking or slavery, and you'll find a ton of organizations that are working in all kinds of areas. For instance, shelters. I mean, the shelters that are uh, set up to help vic- victims always uh, need help. Uh, I mentioned the Salvation Army is a huge uh, organization that's been in it probably since about the Civil War, trying to, to to work to stop the problem. And the website for Artists United for Social Justice is www.ausj.org. And it's got uh, lots of interesting clips, the, the mm-hmm. public service ads that you mentioned, and a whole host of other... Um, it's a very visual website, which is really nice, too, because it, it fits in with the uh, the medium. Uh, well, Sandra Kirkpatrick, I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks. 